Well, good morning again. Welcome to Redeeming Grace Church. My name is Justin, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And if we haven't had a chance to meet, I hope we can meet soon. It's always good to gather with you, even on a gloomy day like today, uh, to be reminded of God's goodness and grace towards us in Christ, and that we're in this together. Hey, before we get into the sermon text and the sermon this morning, I actually just want to take a moment to apologize for something. Uh, A few weeks ago, I uh, got up here and prayed a prayer of lament that was focused mainly on the recent uh, shooting at the private school in Nashville. And I got some feedback from a few members uh, that was helpful and helped me see that while it was meant to be encouraging, that they found it more discouraging and distracting and uh, unnecessary, unnecessarily uh, political. And it wasn't my intention uh, to be political in what I said and what I prayed, but I see now how it was. And so I just wanted to say that I'm really sorry for doing that. In praying and reflecting and talking with the elders, there are some things that I have learned through all of this and I'm continuing to learn. Uh, and one is that I need to just continue to grow in the area of wisdom as a pastor. Uh, I'm doing a Proverbs devotional with my kids right now. And as much as I'm hoping and praying that God would teach them and help them to understand wisdom and folly and understand more of who God is, I know that he's teaching me as well. Proverbs 3, 7 says, be not wise in your own eyes. And Proverbs 15, 22 says, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. And some of what I said and how I went about it was foolish. I should have gotten input on the content of the prayer ahead of time, especially given the sensitivity and complexity of the topic, but I didn't. Uh, And that affected some of you. And so I'm sorry for that. I know there are many things that I fail in as a person and as a pastor. I can be tempted towards laziness or pride or lacking wisdom. And so I'm seeking to press into that, uh, continuing to learn and grow and understand just different patterns, patterns and areas of growth so that I can be a more faithful Christian and pastor. I also should have been more thoughtful and wise in recognizing there are many opinions, even in our own congregation around this topic. And instead, I lacked discretion. I allowed my own opinions and emotions to seep into what I prayed. And in doing that, I didn't serve the whole church well, including the elders, as I sought to lead in in corporate lament. And that also was unwise. And so I'm sorry, sorry for that as well. I want to continue to grow in considering and knowing the whole flock better. And so as I seek to be a faithful pastor, I don't want to be political in seeking to pastor all of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. And I'm grateful to be able to pastor a church, this whole church, and want to pastor this whole church that, uh, that's made up of a diverse group of people who are united not around party lines, but around the gospel of our king and his kingdom. A people who live in the now and the not yet in a place that we just, like we just sang, that is not our home. So I haven't always done that well or wisely publicly, and I certainly didn't do that well in my prayer. And so again, I'm sorry for that. So thank you for those of you that gave me some feedback. I was humbled by it. I was helped by it, by your tone, by your grace. Helped me as a Christian, helped me as a pastor. So thank you for being gracious and patient with me as we journey together to become more like Jesus. If you want to talk more, I'd be happy to to set up a time to do that with you. So just shoot me a note and be happy to set up uh, some FaceTime with you. Now, let's get into God's word and see how great Jesus is. So I'm going to invite Leslie up. She's going to be reading our sermon text this morning out of Mark chapter 9. 
Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what, is, questioning what is this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God of grace and mercy, we praise you this morning. You are great and you are holy. And so we exalt you. God, you are near the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. So God, we thank you. You are our God and we are your people. And so we worship you today. And God, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to continue to do that now as we open up your word. Give us all ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been on a drive or maybe a hike or a bike ride and your mind is wandering a bit? Maybe you have something you're thinking about or you're listening to some music or a podcast and then you look up and think, wait, how did I get where I am? Like, you know you've been moving, but you don't recall going through that stoplight or making that turn or going up this hill or down that one, but you know you've been taking steps along the way. And it's kind of a weird experience. Well, today we're jumping back into the Gospel of Mark, and I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, how did we get here, where we're at in this story? To answer this question, we need to answer this question, it matters because it has bearing on how we're going to continue to learn and glean what God has for us for the rest of our time in this book of the Bible. The Gospel of Mark is a part of God's living and active word. And we've been on a journey through it, but we took a bit of a break, about six weeks where we haven't been in the Gospel of Mark. And so now as we get back into it, I think it's important for us to consider where we've been, where we are, and where this story is headed. So we're not disconnecting what we're going to see today and in the weeks ahead from all that already has taken place. As we want to keep leaning in and keep learning about who Jesus is and what that means for your life and for mine. That question is really the core purpose of this book. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And Mark, the author, is inviting us to ask who is Jesus and helping us to answer that question by showing us Jesus, by putting him on display for us. 
And he does this through fast-paced, action-packed storytelling. So far in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus declare that the kingdom of God is at hand and call us to repent and to believe the gospel. We've seen Jesus teach many things about himself and the kingdom. We've seen him display the power of his kingdom by healing various people with various diseases and relieving the distress of those who are suffering. We've also seen Jesus press on and challenge the religious leaders of the day and how they view God. And they themselves have sought to challenge and even discredit Jesus. All along the way, Jesus has been calling people to himself, starting with the 12 disciples. But see, he isn't simply saying, know who I am, as if it's just about our brains and what we think about him, but he's inviting us as we get to know who he is to follow him as king and enter into his kingdom. In fact, the last time we were in the gospel of Mark, Jesus said in chapter eight, verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, there's a group gathering around. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, if you want to be with me, if you want to be in relationship with me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the pinnacle of this book, this letter, this writing that Mark has here. And today we start to see it play out with increased speed and intensity because Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem where he will be crucified on a Roman cross for you and for me. That's where we've been. That's how we got to where we are today. And that's looking ahead to where we're going. And today, what we're going to see is that because there is none like Jesus, because there's none like Jesus, God calls us to listen to him. But what does that mean exactly? What does it mean to listen to Jesus? Why should we listen to him? Well, the simple answer is because God tells us to. But we're going to see a lot more. There's so much more to it than that. So listen, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey right now, if you're not yet a Christian or maybe you've been a follower of Christ for decades now, the exhortation is clear and applicable for us all. And When we do it, when we listen to Jesus, it will be for our good and for his glory. So let's dive into Mark chapter 9. And may God bless the preaching of his word. Our text today is one combined story, one combined scene, but I want to break it down into three sections, three points of things we see and learn about Jesus. Three things that work together, that build off of one another. The first thing we see in this scene is that Jesus is radiantly glorious. Look at the beginning of verse two. It says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Mark's doing something here by giving us this time element. He's connecting what's about to happen with what has just happened. In the previous section, we saw that Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, confessed, declared that Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah that the Old Testament Writers have been writing about and talking about this rescuer who would come to restore God's people. And in that, Jesus tells his disciples, yes, that may be true that you believe that, but I am going to suffer and die and rise again. This was a shocking statement. It's not what Peter thought should happen. And so Peter, thinking he's being helpful, pushes back on this, on on what Jesus says. Jesus, that's not going to happen. To which Jesus rebukes him. 
This is his mission, and he will see it through. It's then that Jesus, as I mentioned, gives this call to take up our cross and follow him. So it's in light of that interaction six days later that we come to this scene. And Jesus takes three of his 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John, up to a high mountain, leaving the others behind. These three are the closest to him and essentially leaders among the 12. Now, there's a lot of speculation among scholars about which mountain this is, but that isn't so much the point as to what actually happens on the mountain. Look at the rest of verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. Seemingly out of nowhere, something amazing happens. The original word here that we translate transfigured means to be transformed. It's where we get our, the word metamorphosis from. Something is fundamentally and physically different about Jesus in this moment, right before Peter, James, and John's eyes. And so Mark gives us a little more detail in verse 3. He says, And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Mark wants to help us understand what's going on here. He's trying to paint a picture for us to see in our mind's eye what this might have looked like, how this could be. He's saying, This isn't just a costume change for Jesus. He didn't just go like, hey, let me go behind a rock and put on something really white and dazzle you. There's not Hollywood lighting and effects to try and make this happen. Mark's trying to help us see something supernatural is going on here. No one on earth could make Jesus's clothes look this white, this bright. Mark is essentially saying Jesus is glowing before these disciples. But it wasn't just his clothing. In Matthew chapter 17, telling of the same event, Matthew writes this, and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. The last time someone was up on a mountain and came down with a glowing face was when Moses encountered God in his glory on Mount Sinai. But here, we have to catch something here. Mark's trying to help us see something key here. Jesus isn't merely a man encountering God and so reflecting this radiant glory. Jesus is God and is radiantly glorious. Hebrews chapter one, verse three. Adam read this in our call to worship. He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In this moment, two things are going on at the same time. We get the transcendence of Jesus before us. The eternal son who's existed for all eternity, who's high and lifted up, is on display as a picture of his glory is being revealed to these disciples. Yet at the very same time, his eminence is on display, his nearness, his closeness. He's doing this in front of these three friends of his. He's not removed from them. He's personal to them. So why is this happening now with these three disciples? Well, Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ the promised one from the Old Testament who will bring about the kingdom of God. And now in this moment, Jesus is giving them a glimpse, a sneak peek of the fullness of who he is in all of his glory, in all of his grandeur. He took on human flesh, but his glory has existed for all eternity. And he's showing them that here. He's doing it to re reiterate once again that he is who he says he is. He's, the, he's God himself who came to dwell among us. Now, Mark, the author, doesn't tell us to do anything with this in this moment, but I think there's something for us to consider. You and I live in a world full of distractions. There are things that are constantly vying for our attention and our affection. I mean, if we're honest, we're like bugs at night that are attracted to or drawn to light. 
right? We, we, we go after shiny things, bright things, seemingly glorious things. I know I can be like that. But everything the world offers to you, everything the world puts in front of you, be it something or tangible or some kind of promise or someone to say this, this thing or this person will make you happy or safe or satisfied, whatever it happens to be, it is far less glorious than King Jesus. He, along with the Father and the Spirit, is the only true source of glory, of weightiness, of holiness, of perfection. He alone then is worthy of our affection and our attention. Jesus alone is full of splendor and deserving of our admiration and delight. There is none like Jesus, none like him. He's existed with the Father and the Spirit for all eternity and here he is, he's come to dwell among us. There's no one on this earth that is like Jesus. Even the good things of this world, good food and good drink, a good job, intimacy, laughter, fun, none of it in and of itself is radiantly glorious. All of it is given to us as a gift of grace by the one who is radiantly glorious. And when we use those things in the way that he intended, it's for our good and the praise of his name. So what's my point? Simply this. Jesus is radiantly glorious, so look to him. So look to him. There is none like him. So look to Jesus. See him in his word. Set your gaze on him in your heart. Not just to give him the worship that he deserves, but because it will keep you from wandering away and chasing after less glorious things. It'll keep you from wandering away into sin and rebellion and will lead to your own transformation. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, and we all with unveiled face, there's nothing blocking our view, all with unveiled face beholding not our glory, not the glory of the things of this world, beholding the glory of the Lord, the glory of Jesus are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. All of us are in process. All of us have room to grow in our lives. But transformation begins not by trying harder, not by muscling up on our own. Transformation begins by looking to Jesus in all of his glory. This has been so helpful for me over the years, wrestling with different sin and struggles and sometimes being so focused on that that I forget that I have a glorious savior. And it's when I reorient my eyes to look to Jesus, this radiantly glorious one that my sin, I see it for what it's worth. And I want more of Jesus and less of that. Look to Jesus, who is radiantly glorious. And this leads to the next part, the focal point of this scene. As it continues, we also see Jesus is not only radiantly glorious, he's exceedingly greater. Look at verses four and five. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, we, we see that Jesus is not only transformed, not only shining in radiant glory, but Jesus isn't alone. Mark tells us Moses and Elijah appeared with him and are talking with Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly what they're talking about, and we don't know how Peter, James, and John know that it's these particular people who are with Jesus. It isn't like they've looked them up on Google before and can see a picture 
of what Moses and Elijah look like. They're not wearing name tags like some of you are this morning. But, but somehow they know this is who is standing before them. Peter refers to them by name. But Peter's eager, as always, impulsive. He, he, he blurts out something about building tents. Now, there's lots of speculation, again, about what he's meaning, what he's trying to accomplish. But what's clear is what happens in verse 6, what Mark tells us, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I mean, that makes sense, right? I wouldn't know what to say either. Instead of keeping Peter keeping his mouth shut, he blurts something out. I wouldn't know what to do either. I'd be terrified also. So what exactly is going on here? Jesus has been transformed, and now these two saints from long ago show up. But why them? I mean, why isn't it Abraham and David? Why not Isaiah or Jeremiah? Why Moses and Elijah? Well, one reason is that Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. All that God has said and commanded that we see in the Old Testament. But also because Moses and Elijah represent end time hope. In fact, the Old Testament ends with the declaration of that Elijah will come before the last day. Before the last day. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses himself declares, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So why now? Why is this happening now? Because this is the beginning of the end. The world has been groaning since sin entered it. But God has been at work to bring about redemption. And now he has come to dwell among us in the person of Jesus. And what lies ahead for Jesus is the cross, a painful death, dying in the place of sinners like you and me, but also a glorious resurrection. Jesus announced that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's called people to repent, to turn away from our self-sufficiency, our sin, and to believe in him. And now he's about to go complete the mission given to him to rescue and redeem and restore a lost and broken world. Now this scene so far in and of itself is pretty amazing, but something even more amazing happens. Look at verse seven. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. In the Old Testament, when there's an overshadowing cloud, cloud it often signified the presence of God which is exactly what's going on here. Now, this sounds similar to another scene we've seen in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus was baptized and the voice of the Father came, but in that moment, he spoke to Jesus, affirming his identity in favor with the Father, saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. But Jesus isn't the audience here. But the voice of the Father speaks to the disciples and us and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. God's giving us an exhortation, a command that is grounded in Jesus's identity. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets, but Jesus is exceedingly greater than them both because there's none like him. He is the eternal son of God and he is the final word of God. Again, from Hebrews chapter one, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Moses said to listen to a greater prophet. Now the voice of the father is declaring, it's Jesus. This is him. 
So because of who he is, because he is radiantly glorious, because he is exceedingly greater, the Father calls us to listen to him. But what does it mean to listen to Jesus? Right now I'm coaching a little league baseball team that's made up of nine to 11-year-old boys. And we had a game last week, and at the end of every game, whether we win or we lose, we go out into the outfield and have a little debrief. Talk about what went well during the game, things to work on. And man, it is hard to get nine to 11-year-old boys to stop talking and just to listen for a few minutes. Often I remind them to listen. I spend probably half the time just saying, guys, listen, guys, listen. But one of the things I try to help them with in saying that is, guys, I need you to listen with your ears and your eyes. I need you to look at me. I want to know that you're paying attention to what I'm saying here, not pulling more grass up in the field and throwing it all over each other. The same thing's true for listening to Jesus. If we want to listen to him, we have to look at him. We have to look to him. We have to set our gaze, fix our eyes on him. Then, then we're better able to listen because we're not distracted by so many other things when our eyes are locked in on Jesus. But the listening God is calling us to isn't just hearing the words of Jesus just so we can gain more information. No, we have to receive them and understand them and then act on them. This command from the Father isn't, about just, isn't just about what Jesus most recently said, as significant as that is, but all of what he's taught, all of what he's shown us. So what has Jesus said? Lots and lots of things. He's taught us and shown us that he is God himself. He's taught us and shown us what it means to be made in the image of God and to live that out. He's taught us and shown us what it means to live in light of the king and his kingdom, to follow his will and his ways. He's taught us and shown us how to live in this world, but not of it. He's taught us and shown us to love God and love others above ourselves. He's taught us and shown us that he is the way and the truth and the life and that no one, no one can come to the Father. No one can be reconciled to God apart from him. He's taught us about heaven and hell, grace and wrath, and that the path that leads to life rather than death. And he's called us to repent and to believe and follow him. So listen, if you want to know what it's all about, if you want to know what life is all about, if you want to know what death is all about and eternity is all about, you won't find it in the self-help section of Amazon. You won't find it on a Wikipedia page or somebody you follow on social media or some blog you read. If you want to know about all those things, you find the answers in Jesus. When the father says, listen to his son, listen to Jesus, it's a call to listen to and submit to everything that Jesus said and taught, even the hard stuff. Not picking and choosing the things we like, and discarding what we don't. It's a call to submit our entire life to him as Lord and King. So let me ask you, who are you listening to? Who has your ear right now? You know, a lot of times people reject Jesus because of the things they've heard or maybe seen people do who call themselves Christians. Maybe you once were one of those people Maybe you are now, but you're here right now and in God's providence, listening at some level. But listen, if you've never taken time to consider the actual words of Jesus, let me encourage you to do that. Take some time to read through one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and then find somebody 
who is a follower of Jesus, to talk about what you're reading and what you're learning. We also offer a class here called Christianity Explored, which walks through the Gospel of Mark, really trying to answer this question. And so if you're interested in learning together with a group of people and asking questions, reach out to Kenneth, one of our pastors. He'd love to talk with you about getting into the next class. But no matter what you do, please, please don't reject Jesus if you haven't actually considered who he is and what he says about himself. But you know, even if you're already a follower of Christ, it can still be a struggle to listen to Jesus. I know it is for me. There's lots of noise in our lives. Like literally there's lots of noise in my house. (laughs) But just everything else going around in the world and in life, there's lots of noise. There's lots of things, lots of people preaching to us about the way to think and the way to live and the way to engage the world. Lots of competing kingdoms contending for your love and mine, contending for our allegiance. The siren call of this world is loud and it's alluring. And so it can be hard to tune our hearts, to tune our ears to the one voice that matters the most, the voice of our Savior King. And when the desires of our heart don't line up with the way of our king and his kingdom, it can be tempting to set aside what he says is for our good and instead pursue what our flesh or the world says is good. But that's why I'm grateful for a text like this that reminds me once again that Jesus is radiantly glorious. A text that reminds me that Jesus is exceedingly greater than anyone or anything, that there is none like him. That's why I'm grateful to gather with the church week in and week out, to hear the voices of my brothers and sisters lifted up in praise corporately, to hear the word preached and prayed consistently, to take the Lord's Supper weekly, all, all of those things, preaching the good news of Jesus to me because I so easily forget it. I so easily forget who he is. I so easily forget who I am in light of who he is. I need these things. I need the words of Jesus to anchor my soul in the winds and the waves, the ups and downs of life. I'm easily discouraged, easily distracted, and I am far too easily pleased with less glorious things. We will all falter along the way when it comes to looking to Jesus and listening to Jesus, but God's grace is great and it's sufficient because God's grace is given to us in and through this glorious son. In his word, Jesus invites you to himself over and over again. He invites you to find rest in him. He invites you to come alive in him. So along with the Father, let me encourage you today to keep your eyes on him, your ears open to him. Look to Jesus, listen to Jesus. He is faithful and true. I love how this intense encounter ends. Verse eight says, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah are gone, and it's Jesus only. But this isn't just a detail that Mark is giving to us. There's a significance to it. These revered men fade into the background, but Jesus alone remains. God is doing something new. What he's showing us through this whole story, through this whole scene, is that Jesus is preeminent, that there's none like him, that everything revolves around him. He alone has the words of life. He alone is the one who is full of grace and truth. So church, listen to him. That was true for these three disciples. It's true for you and me here and now. Now it doesn't tell us what these three disciples are thinking at this moment, 
but I can imagine it's a combination of being both overwhelmed and really amped up. I mean, they've been with Jesus almost every day for three years. They've seen him do all kinds of amazing things, heal people, feed thousands upon thousands of people, but they've never seen anything like this. They've never experienced anything like this. And they, along with the people of Israel, have looked for and longed for the kingdom of God to come. And now it looks like everything's about to get rolling. Glory's being revealed. Here we go. But Jesus doesn't do things the way we would hope or expect sometimes or even think. The path to glory and the fullness of the kingdom will not come through display of might or power. Instead, we see that it will come about because Jesus willingly suffered. Look at verses 9 and 10. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Not only do they not march into Jerusalem and take over, Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. Can you imagine having an experience like this and having to keep your mouth shut? He says, don't tell anybody until, he does give them an out, until I've risen again. It's not time for the final act yet. There's still more to be done in these coming days. But the disciples, these three disciples still don't quite get it. They're still struggling to understand what must happen to Christ, that he must suffer, that he must die, that he will rise again. And instead of asking him about it, which maybe would seem like the logical thing to do, they ask a question about Elijah instead. Verse 11, and they ask him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Jesus, as he often does, answers their question, but presses a little further. Verse 12 and 13, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written, the son of man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. What's going on here? As we've already seen in Mark's gospel, the title uh, son of man is an end times title used in the book of Daniel. Jesus identifies himself as this person prophesied hundreds of years before he came to dwell on this earth. But in the Old Testament, it doesn't say that the son of man will suffer. Jesus is helping the disciples. He's helping us connect the dots. This end times figure, this son of man is also the promised man of sorrows from Isaiah 53. The one who would be despised and rejected the one who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. In other words, the one who is radiantly glorious, the one who's exceedingly greater will willingly suffer because the way of redemption, the way of restoration comes through death and resurrection. This is so different than what was expected. But it's exactly what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit planned. Our sin and rebellion deserve God's eternal judgment and wrath. But God is a God of grace and mercy, and so he's made a way for your sin and my sin to be forgiven, a way to set us free and be made new. And it will come through Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, taking our place, dying for our sin and our wickedness. That is the good news of the kingdom of God. John the Baptist has come, and John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the coming of Elijah. We saw that all the way back in Mark 1. But John the Baptist isn't a reincarnation of Elijah. Luke 1.17 says he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare a people for the Lord, to prepare a people for the restorer to come. And just as Jesus will suffer for the sake of the restoration of the world, John also suffered in prison, 
beheaded for his faithfulness. Again, this is the upside down, upside down way of the king and his kingdom. And it's the only way for you to experience real life and grace. All of this fits together to show these three disciples, to show us that the end is near. The cross and the empty tomb are fast approaching. So listen, Jesus willingly suffered for you. So as you look to him, as you listen to him, you can now trust in him. Isaiah chapter 53 goes on to say that it is by his wounds that you are healed. Right now, we all suffer the consequences of sin and rebellion, our own and others, cosmically and personally. And it's hard. But what we can see in this is that because Jesus walked the path of death, we can have life. Because he took our place, we can have hope. Because he suffered for us, we can be set free. And because he rose again, we can and will be restored. No one is too far gone. No one is out of the reach and has rebelled too much to experience the grace and glory of Christ. Jesus saves to the uttermost. So trust in him. When you fail and fall, trust in him. When you are suffering or hurting, trust in him. When you are struggling to believe, trust in him. The one who has come will come again and he will make everything sad untrue. I need to be reminded of this regularly. In the midst of frustrating parenting moments or challenging ministry moments or anxiety-ridden days, whether I am underwhelmed or overwhelmed in life, I need to come back to who Jesus is. I need to remember that there is none like him. I need to rest in the truth that he is with me and he is for me and he will never leave me or forsake me. And my guess is you do too. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is radiantly glorious. Will you look to him? Jesus is exceedingly greater. Will you listen to him? Jesus, is, Jesus has willingly suffered. Will you trust in him? Let's help each other do that today and tomorrow and the days ahead, days ahead for our good and for his glory. Amen.